Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this morning with Tobias Lefkovich. He's the chief U.S. equity strategist at City and joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 Studios, we see the tweet this morning, pieced together what happened over these last nine days uh, between the business meetings in Saudi Arabia, moving on to Europe, the NATO summit, uh, the G summit, G7 summit after that. What's your takeaway from that about the, the state of the integrity of the, the alliance between the U.S. Uh, and Europe? And what does that say to you about the, the direction of the U.S. economy? Uh, I'm not sure the two are necessarily related. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say probably the the alliance is you know is fine. Um, I, I think there you know ebbs and and flows of of that alliance, and and there there are certainly differences between, for example, the way George Bush conducted himself, George W. Bush conducted himself with Europe, the way Obama did, and now the way Trump uh, is doing it. And it, it tends to you know move along with the with the various people involved. I've always said that you know I've been going to Europe for I don't know close to 30 years and and there's kind of this you're either neutral about the US if you're European or you're really negative about the US if you're European. They're never almost allowed to be gray. positive yeah. about the US because then I guess you have to get up your European citizenship or something. Um and I, I joke about it a little bit but there tends to be a lot of the political differences show up in the relationships that uh, that are even conversation with investors. It's not even about the leaders of the country. So there, there's certainly a more, I don't know, progressive mindset maybe in Europe that doesn't necessarily exist in the U.S. fully. There's obviously different political sides in the U.S., but it, it's much more entrenched in Europe. And, and I think that tends to come to the fore when you have different leaders who have different perspectives. At this stage, four months into this, this administration, does a tweet like the one this morning or the one last week about uh, automakers, German automakers, a comment about German automakers, <laughs> not a tweet, but a, but a comment, does it have much of an effect on your, your world? Not really. Not really. I mean, I, I, there, there's, there was, I think, initially when the tweets came out and it, the people were reacting to it. It was novel. It. it was new. Yeah. And I don't know if it was novel or new. It just it had an immediate reaction in the markets. And then they've been having fewer and fewer impacts in the market. And that, that was kind of our thought process, that eventually it would kind of fade into the background. Um, it doesn't help, uh, but it's, I, I don't think it's the dominant feature. I think we care more about economic progress. Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed was interviewed by Bloomberg yesterday and talked about how this new administration will have to fulfill the expectations it's, it's laid out and the stock market has for what it intends uh, to do. How heavily does that weigh on you at this so, point? So, you know, we, we track a lot of different things in yeah. the, in, in the uh, stock market, including, let's say, high tax versus low tax performance stocks. We look at the, um, the, the, the interest expense deductibility potentially being removed. You know, how's that affecting stocks that have that kind of uh, exposure? And most of the Trump trade have pretty much rolled off. So the idea that this is being priced in the market, um, I think, is antiquated. With all due respect to Mr. Bullard, I, I think he's mm. wrong on that on that front. Tobias Lefkowitz with the City Group. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, David. Good morning, Gura. Tom. Glad you survived the three-day weekend. 
Made it up 95 with that incident. I, and we watched good. all Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> you did? movies. Like, there's eight of them. Or, yeah, I don't know. not the new one, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I got I got eyeshadow on today, like Johnny, Johnny Depp. It's great for radio. The one thing on the data screen that's there, and I know there's record highs in equities and all that, S&P and not the Dow yet, is curve flattening. What does curve flattening signal to a guy like you? In my mind, it's more about global flows of money than it is about economic trend. Now, I, I, I'm probably not on – I can find people who will say the other side of that argument, that there's something wrong economically. Um, the, the reason I say that is because what is, what's your competition to a two-and-a-quarter, ten-year yield in the world today? 0.04 in JGBs, uh, 0.40 in a bond yield of equivalent duration. Um, and I think if there's a problem – Chances are 10-year treasuries would rally or the dollar would rally. So if you're a foreign investor yeah. buying the U.S. isn't a particularly well, bad trade. And just very quickly, folks, that's price up, yield down. So the curve is flatter from the land of Lefkovich <laughs> because the 10-year yield is lower rather than higher, which would be a steeper curve. That while, while, the that? Yeah, while the Fed is also raising rates on the short Can, end. So Okay, we yeah. need to have a moment of silence, David. Right. Yeah. It's the crunch time for the CFA exams. It's this now weekend. Is a, it's coming up this weekend. Okay. All CFA candidates had a miserable Memorial Day weekend, and we say good morning to all of them. They haven't slept. Well, we say best of luck as well. There's like 8,000 of them at Citigroup, right? Did they get the week off? Uh, I don't think they get the week off, but I've had associates who've definitely taken a couple of days off for it. Uh, the, the, going back to your points about the yield curve flattening, I, I think it's, it's less, from my perspective, about the economy. Um, most of the data that I look at, um, is still pretty supportive. The one area that's squishy, call it, is is the autos. But if I look at capital spending intention, hiring intentions, ISM new order trends, um, consumer sentiment, all the kinds of things that you'd like to be seeing are, are suggesting that we aren't necessarily slowing in the economy. And again, autos is, is an area that there's been a little bit of uh, tension around uh, prime uh, subprime loans and, uh, and, and retail sales trends, inventory. There is some issues in autos and we're monitoring carefully. You had this great note out a couple of weeks back on growth, looking at, at growth. As you've been thinking about it, chewing it over, as we've seen the White House continue to reiterate we're going to see 3% growth, what, what, new, what, what new things have you come to a conclusion on? What, what, what have you learned here thinking about growth in such detail? So we were, we were thinking about a longer-term perspective yeah. when we wrote the piece called Growth, and the one you're highlighting was called Growth, Growth, My Kingdom for Growth. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea was more around what are the long-term drivers of growth? And historically, it's been things like population growth, income growth, productivity, and innovation. Now, I think innovation is still pretty darn healthy out there. Um, I was out in California last week, and you know Silicon Valley is humming. It's humming. Yeah. Um, but if you look at um, demographics, they've clearly weakened. The, the birth rates are down. Population growth is down. Uh, we're still adding 82 million people globally every year, but off of, off of larger base, the percentage increases declined. Um, income growth was a big story in emerging markets over the past decade plus, and and it's still happening. It's not as aggressive, but it's still happening again off a higher base. Um, and the one area that that's probably the most disturbing, and I think it's the one that causes angst amongst economists around the world, is productivity is just 
seemingly not there despite all this investment in technology. And I'm not sure if it's because people are sitting at you know watch you know looking at their Facebook feeds uh, during the day and seeing what their friends had for lunch, um, or you know or they're playing Candy Crush instead of working at their desks. I just don't know. Um, but but there there is some you know you made a comment earlier on, mm-hmm. on TV uh, Tom about uh, Marty Felstein. I know that at Harvard they are spending a lot of time trying to understand why we're not seeing all this productivity benefits. Maybe we're measuring widgets per man hour incorrectly in this kind of service based economy with with new digital technology. And I, I have sympathy to that view because it does seem like things are much more productive. You can sit there in the cab, pay your bills, you know, off your phone. Uh, through your bank account with mobile banking. Yeah, but, so, I mean, that, that's much more productive than sitting at home I mean, at night for, writing checks. Okay, but David, where are you on this? Because to me, it's a partition of American society, yeah. much as we saw in the reporting over Memorial Day weekend. There's a group of society that's taking advantage of what Tobias just mentioned. And there's a whole other group that's just being left by the wayside. And I suppose, too, there's the argument as well, Tobias. So you, how, how, are we getting any better at measuring this? Do, do you see signs that we are? No. no, I don't see any. Better. I don't see signs we're getting better at measuring it. I think this is. I think this is where economists are struggling. Yeah, I've talked to a number of them, and and they have not kind of found the the holy grail on this. Um, but you know, to to your point, Tom, I think innovation over time has always left some people behind. I mean, when I when back in the nineteen thirties, I think it was close to thirty percent um, of the American workforce was working down on the farm. Today, it's less than two percent. Productivity is up more than tenfold through a whole bunch of measures, including you know, mechanized farming, including uh, antifungus type um, pesticides, including uh, modified seed that can that can survive different temperature swings. So there's a lot of different things going on that that. Mm-hmm. allows people to, to kind of move elsewhere. The question is, and I think this is a fair one, <clears throat> are we retraining people fast enough well, for that new economy? And the answer is yeah, probably not. And, and the answer is that's where every article ends up going is mm-hmm. this mystery of retraining and almost career shift, which is uh, a theme unto its own. We're with Tobias Lefkovich of Citigroup. And Tom Keen with you on a Tuesday, four-day work week. Somebody said, a younger soul, David, said, what's a holiday-lengthened work week mean? Uh, and, I, you know, I said, well, you got to live it. You know how it is, folks? You're, like, working five days, and you work four days, and they tell you to squeeze in five days or six days. And that's how you get to a holiday-lengthened work week. He knows about that. He's an academic professor. That was a little sarcasm there. <laughs> Professor, Calamir, <laughs> Professor Calamiris at Columbia University. We, we hardly work during the non-holiday. Uh, Charles Calamiris, who's planning his sixth sabbatical, reforming <laughs> financial regulation after Dodd-Frank is a small but important book. If you wrote this book for the believers mm. in a more conservative free market take on regulation, what's in this book for liberals? What's in this book for Democrats that support... Um, Senator Warren, Speaker mm-hmm. Pelosi, why do they need to read this book? Actually, Tom, at the end of the book, I, I try to argue that it's exactly directed to them because um, some of the concerns, the ineffectiveness of regulation, not just the high cost of regulation, and also the collapse of due process in regulation should particularly be concerns for Democrats, especially now that they're not in power. So we've had eight years of the Obama administration. They don't worry about process, the Democrats, when they're in control. But they're not in control right now. Trump is going to appoint, for example, at least five and maybe all seven of the governors of the Fed. 
And now the discretion, the unlimited discretionary uh, sort of moment-to-moment Kafkaesque process of regulation is going to be in the the people's uh, hands that he appoints. So I think that it's an attractive time for Democrats to be thinking about due process, uh, given that uh, some of their concerns about the Trump administration. So I I really do feel that this is a bipartisan story. and I wouldn't even describe this as a conservative set of principles. I would just describe it as a rational set of principles. The, the, the academic literature over the past nine years has now evaluated the regulatory reforms, and the evaluation is very negative. The regulatory reforms aren't accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish by their own lights. They're doing it at very high cost and having – pretty much destroyed due process uh, in the regulatory mm-hmm. sphere. So I think it's a it's a failure across the board. What lessons can we can we learn? What lessons can we draw from what's happened with the uh, the so-called fiduciary rule? This is something that was in the prominence mm-hmm. of the Department of Labor for some time. We have a new labor secretary who has expressed some desire for the SEC to take on a role uh, in its implementation and, and, and oversight. Uh, indeed, it seems like we may be headed in that, that direction. What does that say to you about the level of complexity associated with financial regulation mm-hmm. now that you have two different agencies uh, fighting this turf war over who's going to oversee a rule like that one? It's an excellent question. I mean, I think th- there are two things that leap to mind. One is once people are used to something and have already gone through spending the cost to adopt it, especially the large players, they want to keep with the status quo. So you're seeing that having already implemented some changes or about to implement them, having paid the cost of it, they now don't want to have to think again about whether the fiduciary rule makes sense. Um, I think that there's another piece to it, which is that specific to the fiduciary rule, that there are some arguments in favor of it. Um, it's a trade-off. It's not clear that it's a good idea, but it's not clear that it's a terrible idea. So I think I was very encouraged that um, we're now going to have from the Labor Department uh, yeah. a, a sort of thoughtful is, review. That's what they should be doing. Is the president on board? I can't figure out if he's a conservative, a liberal, a regulationist, a deregulationist. Mm-hmm. Depends on the tweet. Yeah, I, I, what is it? You got You got Are you going to join his staff? Can we make some news here this morning? Um, I have not been uh, approved. Let's just leave it at that. Right. And um, but I would say that I would be willing to because I think that this is a time where we have to come together. And uh, I think that the president is uh, not fully formed. His views are not fully formed on exactly what to do in financial regulation. But I think his instinct is right, which is that. There's um, there's been a lack of discipline in terms of cost benefit analysis on regulation, right. and so I th- I think that his his actions so far on the regulatory front um, have actually been very encouraging. And as I would emphasize, you have to also ask who's in charge now in the Treasury Department. Muchin doesn't really seem to know much about uh, financial regulation yet. And he doesn't have an undersecretary. In fact, now I don't even think there's one that's been named because. Uh, Can you pass the litmus test? I mean, did you write I'm not something sure. about the president? Uh, you well, like, you know, I think Nick Burns, who joins us in yeah. foreign policy, are you on the ugly list? I may be. Uh, I don't know. I, I did. <laughs> you don't uh, know. I criticized uh, the idea of Chinese currency manipulation in 2015. That's been the main okay. uh, the main thing. So you never know. Okay. How do you teach finance differently than you did in 2006? You don't need a facelift to do that. But how do you teach the troops differently than you did in June or, or in April mm-hmm. of 2007? 
You know, uh, finance has sort of um, fallen off a cliff uh, in MBA curriculums, uh, be, mainly because of the change in uh, jobs uh, that happened in 2007. And so a lot of the teaching has to do with trying to think through um, how crises occur. And I've, I've been teaching a course for 20 years called Emerging Financial Markets, which is all about how things, uh, tectonic shifts happen in different countries. So it was very natural for me. I, I feel like it actually helped my class because it made risk and sy systemic risk uh, really was brought to life by the crisis. So for me, it was actually good news. But for mo much of our teaching in finance, I have to say, I think that it was a little bit overconfident that we thought that it was, oh, well, it's also uh, normal and it's also just about um, technical details. Whereas, in fact, people started asking very basic questions. Do, do banks know what they're doing? Um, do, do people have a way to quantify risk on a forward-looking basis that's useful? So th these were really fundamental questions. I think the curriculum has been affected. But for my class, this was really grist for my mills because that's, that's really what I like to mm -hmm. teach. I want to ask you about uh, Alan Meltzer. Uh, he passed away on May the 8th. We were Very prepared close to do, of do something on the show, and then mm -hmm. uh, the president fired his FBI director and things got busy the following morning. I know that you, you knew him well and Very worked well. on the Shadow Open Market Committee. With What should we know about him and, and, and his legacy? Again, he passed away on May the 8th. Well, you know, Alan was an amazingly diverse and hardworking person. I was with him in the hospital uh, just you know a couple days before he died, and he was working in the ICU. He was working on his new book with pen and paper, uh, with the oxygen hooked up and very, very weak. Um, so he, he was just somebody who had an incredible dedication. He worked on issues as diverse as um, what's the link between monetary policy and inflation, or the political economy of elections, why sometimes growth versus redistribution wins in an election. He also worked on reform of the international financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, etc. Um, he worked, though, uh, on many other issues. Um, he founded the Shadow Open Market Committee. Um, you know, j just an amazing yeah. contributor. Quickly, what was his work with Carl Bruner of the University of Rochester? The Carnegie Rochester mm. series was legendary for all in economics. Absolutely. What was Carl Bruner and Alan Meltzer's legacy? Well, you know, I, I was at Alan's apartment uh, and I noticed several pictures in his office of Carl Bruner still. So Carl Bruner was an incredible influence on Alan. And it, on all of us. And, and it was a personal partnership of dedication to public policy, old school style, right? Yeah. People who saw problems at that time in the 70s, uh, people were saying that inflation wasn't caused by monetary policy. And mm. Carl and Alan, I think, uh, were absolutely dedicated to, yeah. to showing that wasn't true. And the Carnegie Rochester public policy series was uh, really unique. Yeah. Very valuable. Charles Kellemeyer, thank you so much from Columbia. David, my great Alan Meltzer memory was somebody holding an umbrella over his head in the pouring rain at Jackson Hole, and he's really upset that he's wasting time on TV. I said, <laughs> Mr. Meltzer, there's too many panels, aren't there? And he got furious. Tom, that used to be simpler. There were fewer panels. <laughs> In honor of Alan Meltzer, Charles Kellemeyer, with thoughts there. This is Bloomberg.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. David Harrell with us from Chicago. He invests in large cap internationals and is known. He'll have an off year here and off year there, but has put together just a terrific long-term track record. David, good morning. What is your appetite for international stocks right now? Has all the easy money been made? No. First of all, it's never easy to make money, Tom. You know that. Um, there's always the beauty of having the globe at your disposal is you are always able to find a place or a pocket where there's value or perhaps fear and fright have caused opportunity. And I think if you look at the differential that European equities still sell at from a valuation differential perspective to U.S. equities, as an example, there's still some opportunity there. So uh, we're not seeing fire sale prices like we did after Brexit or in February of 2016, but we're seeing some reasonable valuations, especially in some of the uh, European continental blue chips and financials. Where are the other places and pockets you're, you're looking at outside of the, the Eurozone? Well, we have increased our EM exposure a little bit, but again, this is all driven from bottom-up valuations. Yeah. Uh, so, some places are easier than others. Um, we have an exposure to a few good quality Mexican stocks. Grupo Televisa is an example. Um, and we we actually have in our large cap strategy a Chinese stock, Baidu, which is not, of course, the leading search engine in China, but one of the leaders in artificial intelligence, uh, one of the top two or three players in artificial intelligence in the world. So, And they're not owned. There's not a, a direct uh, government ownership, which always scares us. Uh, of course, there is some government influence because of how the Chinese regulate the Internet. But it, it's, it's not owned by government entities, which is, which is the case for a great deal of the Chinese stocks. Is China a place you're looking to more and more for companies that are innovative? You mentioned that company doing work on, yes, search, but also uh, AI. Uh, and I wonder if, if, if that's increasingly the place you look to for, for new novel technology. Well, it's kind of tough because of this government involvement. What I mean by government involvement is the government basically tells them what to buy and what to sell and how to expand. And even with some of the tech companies, uh, you just don't really have that independence 
that you want that you could get elsewhere. And so this is a major problem. I mean, uh, Xi could talk all he wants about globalization, mm-hmm. but when you're a, a European automaker and you want right. to build a plant and, and they want your battery <clears throat> technology for yeah. free, that's not globalization. Where are we on use of cash? And if we finally get interest rate normalization, I guess the first question is, do you predict that? How will use of cash change in a more normal rate environment? I mean, that's a great question, Tom. I do think there will be interest rate normalization. I think this has just been a long cycle. But eventually, you'll start to see interest rates uh, reflect you know, inflation levels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think you'll see some interest rate normalization, that the, that the central banks will realize that these low and negative rates haven't really had the desired impact. And one of the reasons why they haven't is remember Irving Fisher's quantity theory of money and the equals PQ. Well, the problem is that velocity, you know, has, which was supposed to be stable, has fallen. And this is what you're getting at uses of money. Well, at some point, you're going to see the velocity of money pick up mm-hmm. and you're going to see kind of back to the quantity theory of money. But because of technology and financial technology, I would assume actual uses of cash continue to decline, though, of course, the black market loves to use cash. When you, when you talk about the length of this cycle, this being a long cycle, what are the, the signs you see that it may be coming to an end? Well, I think in the United States in particular, you're starting to see um, the, the easing cycle turn. Um, we see interest rates lifting. Um, you talk of what to do with the Fed's balance sheet. These are all little signs that we're going to start to see a, a back to a pickup in a normal interest rate environment. Even in Europe, I think there's some some talk about we're getting getting towards the end of using monetary policy as the uh, end all and be all tool. And I think that's also something that needs to be mentioned is we have around the globe relied far too much on an imperfect tool. And that's monetary policy. I mean, monetary policy is best used to provide a stable price level. It is not meant to be used to to um, lift empl- employment levels simultaneously everywhere, to get the economic engine necessarily started, because of this whole notion that Keynes said you can't necessarily push a string. If, if people don't have positive expectations about the future or animal spirits, they're not going to invest. They're not going to consume. So there has to be something other than monetary policy. And this, I think, is one of the lessons that we're learning post the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, is that monetary policy can facilitate growth, but you need other policies to really ignite the engines of growth. And there's been far too much reliance, in my view, on monetary policy, and it's been used somewhat incorrectly. It is a blunt tool. It is not a tool that you could find fine-tune and, and use meticulously. What have we learned about the, the <clears throat> promise of policy, about optimism here over these last five, six months since, since the election? As you look at uh, yourself and other investors and how they reacted to the presidential election last year and all that that could have ushered in or people thought it would usher in, what have we learned now a few months into the president's term? Well, I think we haven't learned all that much quite yet. I think what we, the biggest thing we've learned is this kind of consistent bashing of success and capitalism and banks and greedy bankers and all of this. You know, everyone's greedy and everyone's out to get the world. 
at least we backed off of that. And I think there was a realization that the private sector creates jobs. The private sector creates opportunity. The private sector creates upward mobility and is not this evil boogeyman. Perhaps that is the biggest uh, lesson learned, the biggest relief, because prior to this, I mean, we had eight years of, of uh, you know, the bashing of the private sector and a free enterprise. And I, I, we still have yet to see what's going to replace it. I think there's still some uncertainty what's going to replace it. But what we have seen is kind of uh, an end to the, the evil private sector rhetoric. Do you invest thinking it's a double-digit return world? Or is David Harrow a single-digit guy? Now, I think what you have to invest is, A, you have to think, of well, what's inflation? Well, it's 1% or 2%. And then, you know, where should interest rates be? Then you add a couple points to that. And what's the equity risk premium? When you add it all together, I think equities through time, if you have an inflation environment of 1% to 2%, should, be eight to, should do 8 to 10% through time through time. And what you achieve is dependent on where you enter in the valuation cycle. So if stocks are kind of rich and you enter there, you will get less than that 8 to 10%. If stocks are kind of average valuation, I would presume you would get around 8 to 10%. If you could buy stocks at a cheap valuation level in the cycle, you will do better than 8 to 10%. But I hope for my shareholders that we could do close to double digit and that we could beat the index that we compete against by you know a measurable one, uh, 150, 200 basis points. And luckily, over 25 years, we've mm-hmm. been able to beat it by 400 basis points. So we got we get bonus points. David Harrow with us on international investing. David, are you more buy and holding now? Is your so-called portfolio turnover rate is it lower and lower, or are you churning and holding stocks for like 10 minutes or 10 months? Well, we tend to be very uh, much on the buy and hold camp. If, if you look at our strategy to analyze a business, to price a business, to buy it low and to sell it dear, business valuation and the creation of business value tends to be a lot more stable than price. Price is very, very volatile, whereas business value, even through cycle, tends to be somewhat move in gentle fashion. So we tend to be very long-term shareholders. Some stocks we've owned for over a decade, as an example. Now, when prices, when you have volatility uh, in prices, that may pick up our portfolio turnover rate. So the natural rate is probably 25 to 30% a year, but in very volatile periods, and if you have a lot of inflows and outflows, it could drift up to 30, 40-ish percent a year, probably still well below the average fund, which, you know, some funds literally are, uh, you know, trading every two days, and you you see two, 300% portfolio turnover. For us, it's a very, very different strategy. How does uh, what President Xi unveiled at his One Belt, One Road forum change the calculus for you, or for investors more generally, outlying these ambitious plans outlining the need for private investment, does that change the calculus for you at all? Well, again, you know, these are plans, and these are mostly words. And what you really need to see, for instance, is, you know, an increase in infrastructure development, as part of this plan really suggests. And you know more airports, port, uh, ports, railway, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. More trade, more free trade. Now, if all this happens, it's quite good, and it's really good for infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure, which is kind of the oil that lubricates economic growth. 
And, you know, we have com- we own shares in companies like Lafarge Wholesome, that is one of the leading cement makers in the world. I mean, this would be very good for Lafarge Wholesome. This would be very good for Glencore, which is a big producer of copper. So, I mean, it would be good for our portfolio. It would be good for global growth. It would be good for just about everyone. But, you know, these are politicians, yeah. and often what they say does not materialize. Where's the growthiness right now? Not the value, but the growthiness. I see you at WPP, Martin Sorrell's uh, company at some point. But, you know, is, is it like in entertainment or cable or something? Where's, where's David Harrow's growthiness right now? Yeah, you know, you don't see just these high pockets of growth. Maybe, you know, yeah. in certain areas of financial technology, maybe certain areas of um, credit expansion. You're starting to see uh, lending pick up in Europe, as an example. I mentioned it before. Europe is, is looking a little better, and part of that manifests itself in better lending volumes. Um you know, autos aren't growing, but they're still selling at or we're at a pretty high uh, level. Uh, you know, even though you know it's slowed down, the auto global automobile sales are at a high level. You still see uh, respectable automobile sales, even in the United States, despite the fact that perhaps too much incentive is needed to maintain those levels. But you still see places in China and emerging markets growing. Um, some consumer products, luxury goods, are growing, uh, soft goods in particular. A company, Kirin, that owns Gucci in, in Paris, uh, Gucci's an Italian company, uh, Kirin oh, really? is the owner. Uh, <laughs> owner is a French company. You go into a Gucci store in London on a Saturday afternoon and oh, it's really? like a mob scene, a mob scene. Really? So, this is news Tom, to Tom, looking David. For yeah. something <laughs> to buy your wife, uh, Gucci is very hot. Uh, really? Thank you. Fashion advice with the wise guy from David. Get one more question in with David Harrell before I hit him over the head. Very quickly, David, in in light of the tweet from the president this morning, in light of the the reports of the new tension between Europe and and the U.S., how much does that matter to you as a global investor, global politics and and, uh, the comedy between the U.S. and, and, and Europe? Not really too much, David, because what really matters is how does this impact a company's ability to generate cash flow streams? And so much of it, again, just ends up being noise. Now, I just saw the tweet about the trade deficit. Yeah. Well, the problem is that you know some of this is autos, but the German car companies, namely BMW and Mercedes, have substantial operations in the United States and are huge exporters. Every X-series truck literally uh, around the world is made in South Carolina. So when you you go around the world and see an X5 and X3 and X2 and X1, those are all U.S. cars, you know, made in. So, I mean, this is, is, again, the problem with politicians. They just say things that aren't always accurate. David, thank you so much. David here with Greatly and Harris Associates. Greatly appreciate uh, that this morning. It is our great pleasure to bring you now a gentleman who has changed worldwide how we get around, how we fly. His effect has been profound. I can think of very few people in the airline business even approaching the work of Michael O'Leary and the impact. He runs a small shop called Ryan um, Air. 
I met you in the basement of our London offices. I think the Wright brothers had just landed in the Carolinas on the beach. You've been doing this, Michael, a long time. Is it still fun? Thank you, Tom. I know you didn't say that I've improved air travel. Yeah, no, I, we, I, we not, changed. not after the weekend we've had, but are <laughs> but you still having fun? I'm having more fun. If I had any more fun, this is the most fun you could have with your clothes okay. on, Tom, in Europe. Uh, bringing forward lower fares, keep driving down those airfares and making it impossible okay. for other airlines to compete. After what Mr. Walsh and company saw this weekend, can yep. you outsource IT? We don't think so. I mean, we've deliberately insourced the whole IT function under Ryanair Labs for the last couple of mm-hmm. years. Now, to be fair, I don't think what happened this weekend had to do with outsourcing, but there's clearly something wrong with their disaster recovery program. Right. I mean, there's no way that any you know large company can operate with all of its data in one centre, whereas some a power surge takes it all out. I mean, it's just it's beyond incompetence. I mean, we've had this three or four times now, right? To be yep. fair to British Airways, they're a small airline company in London. You may have yeah. heard of them. Vaguely, I <laughs> They carry about 30 million passengers a year. We carry about 120. So, you know, but I, I think there's something wrong with the disaster recovery program. We Our data centers are spread across five different data centers in Europe. We have disaster recovery programs for each one. So if one thing goes down, you switch to the other four. Um, but, you know, ultimately... These are just blips. Uh, BA is doing a reasonably good job. They're trying to lower their costs. Unfortunately, they can't lower them down to where Ryanair is, so they're still not able to compete with us on price. But the good news is that we're continuing to expand rapidly. We have uh, produced guidance this morning. We see our fares falling by another 5 to 7% in the next 12 months, but profits will rise by about 8%. And so good, you think, is the business model. We're buying back another 600 million euros of our shares in the next couple of months. What's the, the greatest challenge that you face? You talk about the expansion and the, the reducing fears even more. What, what's the, the biggest challenge that you face in the next six, 12 months? Well, I think without doubt, it's uh, always cost discipline. Mm-hmm. Keeping How do we get the cost to come down again? And this is where you know our new aircraft order with Boeing, we're taking delivery of 50 great Boeing 737-800s each year for the next eight years. That's going to take down our costs. We're talking to airports all over Europe who are terrified that Alitalia is now in Chapter 11, Air Berlin. That's is right, we're ready to go. Yeah, Air Berlin's going to be... How do you bo- get to Rome? What what are you going to do about Rome, FCO? We're now the second largest airline in Rome. We have a big base in Ciampino and we have a big base in Fumicino. And I think what happens, Tom, is as, as Alitalia emerges from Chapter 11, it would probably be uh, more focused on long haul right. where they can make money. And I think they're going to have to cut their capacity on short haul, where they're just unable to compete with Ryanair either on Italian domestics or short haul European routes. He's do planning you, a trip. That's the secret. Do you, no, yeah, no. <laughs> do you see any indication that the American public wants anything but cheap price? I keep hearing these theories. They want this. They want that. Baloney. They just want the lowest price. And it's not just the American public, the European customer as well. I mean, the first 99% of people booking a trip, the first question is who's got the cheapest fares? Yeah. Now, they want safety, they want new aircraft, and they want punctuality. But other than that, <coughs> they're willing to trade almost every element of customer service, yeah. which is, if you look at the Ryanair revolution, Tom, in the last 20 years, we were the first people to start charging for the onboard snacks, the first people to start charging for checked-in bags. Not because we wanted your money, we wanted people to start right. bringing checked-in bags, and it's I'm, been transformational. I'm on air, on a, on, a, on a surveillance golf stream, I'm paying people not to bring the snacks to me. Sure. And that's the goal. Uh, Michael Leary, thank <laughs> you so much, with Ryanair. Let's speak in London. This is Bloomberg.
David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? Very glad to. Looking forward to this next conversation with Graham Allison. Uh, he is a professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the author of a new book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the Thucydides' Trap? Uh, he joins us now on our phone lines and running through his bio there, failed to mention uh, his role uh, in government as well, having served as an assistant secretary uh, of defense previously uh, as well. Great to have you with us. And help me with the, the Greek term first. I think we should begin there. Thucydides' trap. What is it, and what can we learn from it here in 2017? Okay, so it's a mouthful, and some people have a little trouble saying Thucydides. I practiced. I did practice before the show. You did good. Okay, so Thucydides was the father of history. He wrote about the great conflict in classic Greece between Athens and Sparta. And the Thucydides' trap is uh, when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, uh, bad things happen. Alarm bells should sound, danger ahead. In Thucydides' case, it was, as he said famously, quote, the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. In this book, I look at the last 500 years, I find 16 cases in which a rising power threatened to displace a ruling power. Twelve of them ended in war. Four and not war, but in general, um, business as usual, will produce history as usual. And in the case of the rise of China, which is now threatening to displace the U.S. in arena after arena, either we'll learn the lessons of history or we'll be destined to repeat it. Help me with the inevitability of that trap. If anything, the, the last presidential campaign taught us to look at this relationship in a binary. Uh, and there are a lot of people who fear the rise of China. Is conflict with China, conflict between China and the U.S., an inevitability as you see it? In a word, no. Okay, so when Thucydides said, made the war inevitable, if one reads it in context, as I say in the book, he's really exaggerating. He meant this to be hyperbole, just for the purpose of emphasis. Just likely would be a more likely, a more, more appropriate word. So if we look at uh, the, the recent history, as I say, just the last 500 years, 12 cases of war, four cases of not war. So that clearly does not mean inevitable. That just means that's the way to bet it mm. if people don't right. uh, learn. Yeah. Graham, you founded the Kennedy School at Harvard. You were the force that got it going and got it on to bigger and better things. If you were lecturing today at Kennedy on North Vietnam, what will be – this is the number one question I get on North – excuse me, on North Korea, a, a little – misstatement there by myself That's showing okay. we're doing a little history good yeah north korea what do the pre how are the president's comments received in north korea by their leadership well i think the north koreans are a puzzle for all of us and i don't believe anybody has a good fix on them i mean kim jong un uh, at least until uh, the past year was clearly the strangest most erratic most impulsive uh, most unpredictable character, you know, on the on the global stage. You know? So this is a guy who uh, looks at his uncle, thinks that he might be suspicious, and gets a rocket launcher to uh, blast him away in public. Who uh, you know killed his half brother or had him killed in the recent event in Malaysia. So it's a very strange guy. Nonetheless, I think as he looks and listens to uh, Trump, he may at least think that things will change. What he's learned from his father and from his grandfather is that North Korea can just 
take one step after another uh, and defy uh, the U.S. and defy China in uh, creating nuclear weapons, building a nuclear arsenal, testing uh, missiles, being capable to now deliver a warhead against South Korea, also deliver a warhead against Japan, and God forbid, soon, but in the next year or so, uh, soon, on the current path, to be able to deliver a warhead against San Francisco or Los Angeles. So he hears Trump saying, no, I'm telling you, this is not going to happen. Of course, that's the same thing he heard from George W. Bush. That's the same thing he heard from Obama. That's the same thing he heard from Clinton. That's the same thing he heard from Xi and his predecessors. So I suspect he thinks he can get away with it. And that's why I think this is going to be very dangerous. He's strange. He's dangerous. How do you, you counsel a student who wonders how you engage with a leader uh, like that. We've enjoyed talking with your colleague, uh, Ambassador Nicholas Burns, from time to time here on the show. Of course, he's uh, dealt with these issues. Ambassador Chris Hill, whom we've talked to as well, uh, has dealt with them uh, as well. How do you engage? How do you deal with, with, with a leader who is so erratic? Well, I, I get an excellent question, and I would say that we've had great diplomats and great uh, secretaries of state uh, try to deal with this riddle, uh, but the truth is that if you look at the facts unsuccessfully, that is, the succession of efforts have not been successful in dealing with either Kim Jong-un or with his dad. I, th- I think uh, I start by asking about all leaders and their regimes, what do they really care about, what matters most to them? And I think for him, it's his survival and the survival of the Kim regime. It's essentially well, a, a dynasty. The and I think, I think, therefore, uh, to the extent that he feels that the regime is threatened, if there was a credible way to do that, we might be able to move him. A book that's getting considered in rave reviews, Destined for War, Graham Allison, who was at Harvard's Kennedy School, indeed was the founder and the soul of the school. A guy named Kissinger says of this book, I read it with great interest. I can only hope that the U.S.-China relationship becomes the fifth case to resolve itself peacefully. Speaking of peacefully, let's talk NATO. Professor Allison there was a thing called the Truman Doctrine, March 12th, 1947. How scared were we in March of 1947? Extremely. Uh, the, uh, again, hard to remember the Cold War, but the Soviet Union emerged from World War II uh, as the other great power. Uh, the Soviet Union was getting its act together and aggressively reaching into Europe, including into Greece and into Turkey, into France, into Italy, into their politics. And the Truman administration, initially with the Truman Doctrine, and then with the Marshall Plan, also in 1947, and then with the creation of NATO in 1949, pushed back. And basically, that's the reason why we have a free Europe today. Let me ask you about the, the message, the tone, the, the content of the president's speech in Brussels uh, last week. He received a lot of criticism for focusing so much on funding and so little on uh, the alliance and its history and its importance. Let me stick with the funding side of things for just a, a second here. You've written about this before. I think you're, you're of agreement here that uh, European nations, most allies, should be doing more to get to uh, the 2% commitment they've, they've made. Why is that case so difficult to make? Why does it have to be made in such maybe a, a ham-handed way by the president in Brussels? It's clearly something he cares a lot about. Why Why hasn't he, why haven't previous presidents made much traction there? 
Well, I, I think it's a great question, and I think essentially the president speaks for many Americans when he says, rightly, uh, Germans are as wealthy as the U.S. Why should the U.S. citizens, taxpayers, pay more to defend Germans than Germans are prepared to pay for, to defend themselves? And the answer is, well, we've been doing that through the period of the Cold War, when NATO was the pillar essential for the defeat of the evil empire, uh, that was understandable, or at least explainable. But uh, in the period, the last 25 years since the end of the Cold War, this becomes less and less plausible. From the European perspective, uh, a free rider's uh, role is a good is a good role. Uh, and even though repeatedly presidents and secretaries of defense have said to the NATO counterparts, this cannot continue. We're not going to continue doing this. American taxpayers won't continue supporting it. Basically, they've said yes, 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 but they meant no, no, no. So I think I can empathize with President Trump's frustrations, which are shared by many people. If you look at Gates's speech at his last NATO meeting, it looks very similar mm. to, uh, to, to what Trump was saying about, you know, look, guys, this cannot go on in this fashion. But moving people from a position in which you can't really uh, exclude them from a defense perimeter because we care about their defense as well uh, is a dilemma. There will be, be some listening today who will sympathize with what Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said, mumbled off Mike uh, on his first trip to Europe as Secretary of State. Uh, why, why is NATO relevant? What do you say to them? How do you make the case to, to Americans that this alliance, which is storied and has been around for, for so long, indeed Article 5, triggered after 9-11, uh, has done more than yeoman's work in Afghanistan uh, in our war there? How do you make the case for its continued relevance, that Americans should continue to, to foot billions of dollars a year to pay for it? Well, I'd say there the, the three things. First is uh, the historic fact that it's been the greatest alliance in history and was essential for the defeat of the evil empire. Secondly... It is our closest set of colleagues for engagement in the world. So NATO members are with the U.S. in Afghanistan today. NATO members were eager to be with the U.S. after 9-11. So if the U.S. wants any company in the world yeah. in terms of values, interests, institutions, uh, it's NATO. And then thirdly, as President Trump has said, for the fight mm -hmm. on terrorism, basically uh, Europe is the heart of that now, right. as you see the, the the populations that have have come into the European countries and not been fully integrated. What is your quickly? What is your prescription, Professor, for Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson? Well, I think they have a hard job dealing with the NATO counterparts because the NATO counterparts have become accustomed to basically not being serious about defense not being serious about their own defense, not spending what they should spend, and even worse than what they spend is what they spend it on, mainly on headquarters and uh, bands and uh, flyovers, not fighting capability. So trying to get NATO to uh, be mm -hmm. a good partner is going to be a long, hard slog, yeah. as it has been. This has been wonderful. Destined for War, Graham Ellison, again. Robert D. Kaplan writing it up in the journal today among many of the constructive reviews. Destined for War, it is um, most uh, thoughtful. He is at the Kennedy School, Harvard. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.